Welcome to the Crossing. So glad that you are here today. And I want to congratulate all of the parents whose kids go back to school tomorrow. You made it through the summer. And I apologize to all the students who have to go back. You know, always a bad day. Well, in three weeks, we are kicking off a brand new series called Transformed. And God's desire is that we would be transformed in our lives. So let me give you the thesis for this series. That the further away you get from God, the more your life will be troubled. But the closer that you get to God, the more your life will be transformed. And so we want to take a significant step forward in this transformation process. So not only are we going to be doing this series on the weekend, I want to ask you to engage in two other things. Number one, I want to ask you to get this book. This book is written by Rick Warren, and it is basically a daily devotional. As we're going through this series on Sunday, this will be the daily devotional that you can go through as well. The number one indicator of spiritual growth is Bible engagement. It's not church attendance. Pastors, we would like to think it's church attendance. The number one indicator of spiritual growth is Bible engagement. And so we want to help you have a daily time with God to engage in your Bible, to be plugged in. So we have these books for sale out in the lobby, and you can pick those up today to get ready for the series. Second thing is I want you to get into a group. That One of our values here at The Crossing is that life change happens best in relationships. The life change doesn't happen best on what happens here on Sundays. It happens best when we get in circles with other people. We're in relationships with them. And so our goal is to have 3,500 people in a group for this series. And it's an eight-week commitment. This is not till Jesus comes back. You don't have to be in this group forever. So if you don't like them, it's just eight weeks that you're in it. And some of you are freaked out to be part of a group. And so my encouragement for you is why don't you host a study? You just host a study at your house, invite some of your friends over, and you can take part of this. So we will kick that off in three weeks. Well, today, we are kicking off our series, Me, My Selfie, and I. Now, I was reading an article the other day that said that selfies are the new autograph. It used to be that when you ran into somebody famous, you would get their autograph. When I was a kid, I have autographs of of all of my heroes in the sports world. I have an autograph of Joel Namath. I have Roger Staubach. I have Pete Rose. I have all of these great heroes. But today in our social media world, nobody cares about autographs anymore. They want a selfie. So when they meet somebody famous, they want to get a selfie so that they can post it on their page and get the most likes. And the truth is, the rest of us really don't care. But people want to get the most likes. And so... This series is about that one thing in you and that one thing in me that keeps us from this life that God has for us. So let me just give you some symptoms of this. This is the one thing that keeps you from celebrating other people's success. This is the one thing that keeps you from from initiating an apology even when you know you're wrong. This is the one thing that causes you to argue your point even when you don't have a good point and you know you don't. It keeps you from admitting weakness. It keeps you from admitting loss. It keeps you from admitting that you need help. It keeps you from admitting that you're wrong even when everyone else in the room knows you're wrong. It's what causes you to feel good when other people fail. It's what causes you to cheat before you would allow yourself to lose. It's what causes you to lie about your past. It's what causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying attention. 
It's our pride. It's our pride. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be diving into this. Now, this is not the good kind of pride where you're proud of your kids or you're proud of your accomplishments or your hard work. This isn't the pride that inspires people to greatness. This is that ugly thing inside you and me that we can't quite keep in control. See, the problem with pride is you can see it in other people in a second, but you can rarely see it in the mirror, which means there are people in your life who may be victims to your pride and you don't even know it. So over the next three weeks, we're going to tackle this issue. We're going to learn how to recognize it in ourselves and learn how to kill it in our lives. See, here's what pride does. Pride diminishes you. The first thing that pride does is it diminishes you. Pride is what drives you to make yourself look better. And in reality, it makes you look worse. It does the exact opposite. Pride diminishes you and your, your ability to admit what you need to admit, to acknowledge what you need to acknowledge. It, it diminishes your ability to apologize when you need to apologize. And it's so emotional in us that we have those times where we know that we should apologize. I should walk over to that person. I should tell them that I'm sorry, that I was wrong, but pride gets in the way. Pride is this prison that actually diminishes you, but it's not just that. The second thing is pride crowds other people out. For some of you, there are people who love you and they are dying for a positive word from you. They're dying for a positive affirmation, just one compliment. But pride crowds people out. And there are people in your life who are walking on eggshells around you. And you don't even know it. You don't even know that it's happening. And the third thing is that pride crowds God out as well. Look what David writes here in Psalm chapter 10. He says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him because prideful people seek out what is best for themselves. In the Hebrew, this literally says, in his thoughts, there is no God. Because what pride does is in our thoughts, we just feel like we're the center of the universe. And so we begin to crowd God out. And this is the potential of your pride is it may be pushing God out. So I'm going to give you the bottom line for today. I'm going to give you the big idea up front, and then we're going to kind of see how this all fleshes out in our life. Here's the bottom line, is that pride is a prison that shuts us in and shuts God and others out. Pride is this prison that shuts us in and then shuts God and others out. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. We're also going to have the scriptures over here on the side screens. But in this series, we're going to use the book of Daniel as a backdrop. In the book of Daniel, there's actually four kings who are in the book of Daniel, and we're going to look at three of them in this series, and we're going to look at the pride in them, and you may find yourself in one of these stories that we talk about over these next few weeks. Well, today we're going to look at this first king in the book of Daniel. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and in the year 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel. And he went into Jerusalem and he totally destroyed the city. And whenever Nebuchadnezzar invaded a country, instead of just taking slaves, he would take the best and the brightest of that country. He would bring them back to Babylon. 
He would give them new names, new haircuts, new customs, new ways. He would turn them into Babylonians. Well, four of these guys who were part of this Israelite, these young guys that he took, that they were part of the best and the brightest, you may recognize their names. It was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they become these powerful advisors to the king. And several times, if you read through the first three chapters of Daniel, there's several times where they confront Nebuchadnezzar and they show that his pride is getting in the way and, and he begins to look towards God, but then pride comes back in. And so we're going to fast forward about 25 years later and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's going to tell this account from the first person account and Daniel is going to record it for us. So in chapter four, we're going to start in verse four. It says this, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And his dream was is that he saw this big tree. And this tree was so large that everyone in the world could see it. And there was a voice that came from heaven that said, cut it down. And the only thing that was left was this stump. And so as he's explaining the dream, he begins to talk about this voice. And in verse 17, here's what the voice from heaven said to him. It says, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. God is saying that you may think that you're in charge, but I'm the most high. I'm the most sovereign. I have the most power of anyone who's around. Well, he tells this dream to Daniel and Daniel's face goes white. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to say to him, I mean, what's wrong? I mean, you can tell me I'm the king. I can take it. Just tell me what's wrong. Daniel says, this does not look good for you. Nebuchadnezzar, this does not look good for you. I wish this were a dream about your enemies, but it's about you, that you are the tree in this dream. And he begins to tell him the interpretation of verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with dew of heaven. Seven times, now this is some kind of period of time, we don't know what it is, it might be seven weeks, seven months, seven years. My guess is this is probably a longer period of time, it's probably seven years. He says seven times will pass by. For you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, you may think that you're special. You may think that you are secure in your position, but this is your destiny. What, I'm, what he's saying goes, this is your destiny until you acknowledge that you are a king. You are not the king. Going on in, in verse 26, it says this, it says, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge, now look at this, this is the only time this phrase is in the entire Bible, when you acknowledge that heaven rules. 
So you think that you rule. You think that you're the one who calls the shots around the world. But he says, until you acknowledge that heaven rules, you're going to be in this place. Well, Daniel begins to talk to him and he begins to to beg him to repent of his pride. Verse 29, it says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? That he is the most powerful man in the room. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's the king of Babylon. And if this were a movie, this is the point that the soundtrack would begin to change. This is when every, the tone begins to change, verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. Now, don't miss this. It says your royal authority has been taken away from you, which means somebody gave it to you. Somebody gave it to you. It is a stewardship that anytime that you are in a position of power, it is a stewardship. It is temporary. Somebody gave it to you and you are accountable for it. It says this, it says, you will be driven away from the people and will live with the, with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, sometimes when we read a Bible story, we go, okay, now does that really happen? I mean, could that really happen? Well, this is, there is actually a mental condition for this where this happens. If you look at Wikipedia, and if it's in Wikipedia, it must be true. If you look in Wikipedia, there is a condition called boanthropy. Now, boanthropy, this is what it is. A person in a delusional state believes himself or herself to be an ox or a cow and attempts to live and behave accordingly. And it goes on in Wikipedia, and it talks about stories where this has happened. Well, Nebuchadnezzar goes from being the most powerful man in the world to eating grass which gives you an idea of how seriously God takes pride. It gives you an idea of how seriously God sees this whole prideful nature that he has and that we have as well. Verse 34, again, this is Nebuchadnezzar telling this story. He says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. See, he goes from my kingdom and my power to his dominion and his power. Then verse 37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who look at this walk in pride, he is able to humble. Here is the most powerful man in the world, humbled by the king of kings. The most powerful man in the world. See, pride is a prison that shuts you in 
and shuts God and others out. And like Nebuchadnezzar, you would think that we would get this. You would think that we would recognize this in our own life, but our natural inclination is to look away from God and look towards our own self-sufficiency. Our natural inclination is to kind of leave God by the side when we don't need him and kind of pull ourselves up and think that it's all about us and what we've accomplished and what we've done. And most of us will come to a moment where we have to decide if we're going to keep being focused on ourselves or we're going to finally raise our eyes back towards God. And Nebuchadnezzar gives us the warning. He says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. And if we had time, some of you could come up and you could tell your story about how this has happened in your life. That there came a moment where finally you were humbled. It might be what brought you back to church. It might be what finally brought you to faith in Jesus. Is that you had a moment in your life where you were totally humbled. It was out of your control. And you had to swallow your own pride and go a different direction. See, today, I want us to begin to recognize our own pride to recognize our own pride that we see in ourselves. And so to do that, I just have three questions for us. Here's question number one, is how does pride manifest itself in you? How does pride manifest itself in your life? See, if you don't know the answer to this question, somebody around you does. They know the answer. A few months ago, I challenged you to ask someone, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Because there are people who are on the other side of me that they know things about us that we don't. That the average person has between three and four blind spots. And when you have the courage to say to somebody, what's it like to be on the other side of me? They can articulate these blind spots that we don't know anything about. But they can see them. They can see these things that are holding us back. What's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to... To really begin to see this pride in me. Let me tell you how pride can manifest itself in me. I used to say that I don't care what people think about me. It's just not true. I hate to admit it, but I care what people think about me. I, I do. I hate it about me, but I do. And there's a lot of times where people recognize me, they know who I am, and in an attempt to, to protect my reputation or whatever it is, there are times where I can be tempted to lie or to exaggerate so that people will like me, so that people will think more about me. Now, should I protect my reputation? Well, absolutely. You ought to protect yours as well. But this is one of the things that I begin to recognize about my own pride because pride kind of wants to be on the center. Last year, I was coming back from my summer break, and I was out in the lobby, and somebody had come to church. They were here for four weeks in a row, and they had never seen me before. And so when they saw me, they came up to me and they go, oh, are you one of the new pastors here at the crossing? And there was this moment in me that I wanted to say, do you know who I am? I started this church. It's like, what is that? Well, that's pride. And just in a split second, I just caught myself and I go, I'm just one of the pastors here on staff. My name's Shane. Because pride does that. So how does pride manifest itself in you? How does it manifest itself on you? Maybe you're in a position of power, and what happens is you begin to feel entitled. 
You begin to feel like that everybody else should be doing things for you. That's pride. How does pride manifest itself in you, in your world? Second question. What does pride masquerade as in you? What does pride masquerade as in you? Confidence? You say, I'm just confidence. No, you're arrogance. Now, there's nothing wrong with being confident. There's nothing wrong with that. But if, but if confidence is how you masquerade or camouflage pride, then you have a problem. Maybe it's your intellect. That you have three or four reasons why you shut down every single spiritual conversation. And if you gave you three or four reasons, they would all make sense. But it is your intellect that's causing you to stiff arm God. That's what you use. You use your intellect to kind of keep God at a distance. And it is your pride, not your intellect, that's keeping you from God. It's your pride. For some of you, it's fashion. Is there anything wrong with fashion? Well, of course not. But for some of you, that's how you masquerade pride. Is, is you want to... You want to have this certain image that other people see. Maybe for you it's sarcasm or maybe it's a commitment to excellence. That There are a lot of things that can be healthy and good, that they can be virtues that help us, that can turn into pride. But when you begin to recognize them and call them out, you're beginning to make progress. Well, here's the third thing. Is how much longer do you plan to let pride Crowd God and others out. How long? A month? A year? Do you want this to be the pattern of your life for the rest of your life? Wouldn't you finally like to be able to, to break the stranglehold in your life? Wouldn't you like to finally be able to, to walk away from its control on you? Wouldn't you like to recognize it when it starts to creep back in and be able to go, pride, you are not my master. You are not my master. You do not have control over me. I'm done with you. For some of you, you need to leave here and you need to go tell somebody you're sorry because it is your pride that has got in the way. For some of you, Maybe you just need to say, I just need to go tell my son how proud I am of him, even though he doesn't make all the decisions that I would have made. For some of you, maybe you have withheld blessing from your daughter for a long time because she didn't pursue what you wanted her to pursue at whatever level. And so you withheld blessing. Maybe it's saying, I need to admit that I have a problem. I have a drinking problem. I have an addiction I need, a, I need help. It's finally saying that I am no longer going to let pride shut me in and shut God and others out. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So why not make this decision for yourself and not force God to make it for you, to begin to recognize this? So are you ready to take control of it? And if not, why not? Why would you allow this to define your life? Why would you continue to embrace and follow something that has the potential to kill you instead of following someone who died for you? Why would you continue to let your pride kill everything that is valuable to you in your life instead of choosing to surrender your life to the one who died for you.
Why would you not embrace this radical approach to humility that Jesus had? Paul ex- explains the humility of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, this is the one that we follow. That's the example of the one that we follow. And as as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, This is the expectation that we would lead with humility. But we've got to recognize when pride begins to come in, how we begin to masquerade pride through other things in our life. Go, pride, you are not going to be my master anymore. I want to speak to two groups here. First group, those of you who are followers of Christ, but pride is getting in the way of your relationships. It's time to sacrifice your pride and lay it down at the cross. It's time. Second group, those of you who have kind of stiff-armed God, you hold God at a distance. And the truth is, it's your pride. It is your pride that has kept you from finally surrendering your life to Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity today to start over, to start a relationship with Christ, to surrender your life to him. So here's what I want to do. I just want to ask everybody just to bow their heads, close your eyes. We're going to pray together. But maybe you're at the place right now where you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus. Just say this. Just say, God, today I'm asking you to forgive my sins. I'm asking Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm surrendering my life to him. God, thank you for being a God who sees through our pride and our self-sufficiency and you love us and you sent Jesus to die for us. God, I pray that you would not only help us to, to recognize our own pride, but to be radical about serving you and following you, laying our pride at the feet of Jesus. So we honor you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.